Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, we are extremely excited about the hearing we're having today. We thank uh, both of our witnesses for taking the time to be with us. I, I don't think uh, this hearing could come at a better time when the nation's uh, beginning more fully to focus on our place in the world. And obviously the presidential races that are underway are gonna heighten that focus as time goes on. Um, both of our witnesses have uh, been uh, served in very, very substantial roles in administrations and have had to deal with uh, the daily crises that occur within an administration. And uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, in many ways, uh, uh, which is you know obviously removed from that, should be a, a place where we look at those activities and, and yet are able to have some distance and look at some long-range um, issues that we need to deal with and just where we're gonna be in the world. And so this, uh, this hearing, I think, is a, is, a, is a step in that direction. Uh, again, uh, I know uh, we're all thrilled to have you both. And during this hearing, what I'd love to hear is, first of all, some of, the, some of your thoughts with our current crises um, that we have, everything from Russian aggression to what's happening in the Middle East to transnational terrorism upheaval in Europe, uh, the North Korean saber-rattling, what's happening in the South China Sea. Second, uh, in light of these events, it's my hope we'll explore their thinking as to, your thinking as to what core U.S. interests are. I think that's something that we don't spend enough time focused on uh, when we begin to take actions. Third, I'd like to get their perspective on the tools in our toolbox that are, that are most effective in accomplishing our goals and securing a future role. Whether it's our military, our economic influence, trade, engagement in multilateral organizations and alliances, what's the right balance in using these tools and what are their costs and benefits? Uh, fourth, I'd love to hear how they feel about our indebtedness at home and the inability uh, to find a solution for the unfunded liabilities that we have and the pressures that that places uh, on our ability, if you will, to, to deal with foreign policy and to deal with issues around the world in the most appropriate way. And then finally, uh, both of you, uh, I know that both of you are, are deep policy people and have made great things happen for our country and your careers. You have to have a little politician in you to do, uh, to do what you do, and so you're very aware of where the American people are today, uh, where there's Obviously, uh, they're wondering how much we should be doing overseas. Uh, a lot of focus on what ought to be happening at home. And so all five of those are topics that I hope we'll address today. Again, I thank you both for being here. And with that, I'll turn to our distinguished member, uh, ranking member, Ben Cardin. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I very much appreciate you convening this uh, hearing. And I want to thank Secretary Baker and Mr. Donilon for your incredible years of public service. Uh, to, to me, this is a, a real opportunity to have you before our committee so that we can gain from your experience and, and try to do what we can to make America stronger. So we thank both of you very much uh, for being here today. Uh, this hearing is titled America's Role in the World, and we certainly have enough challenges, uh, and there's certainly a need for U.S. leadership globally. When I look at America's strength, yes, I see our military, the strongest military in the world, the best soldiers in command, the, the best military equipment. But to me, the strength of America and its influence globally is in our ideals, is what we stand for. It's the, our, our, uh, uh, our standing for democracy and good governance and rule of law. And we look at some of the actions that we've taken in my 
years in the Congress. I've been very active in the OSCE, the Helsinki Commission, and I look at that founding principle that a country's security is more than protecting its borders, it's its economic opportunities and its respect for basic human rights. And to me, that's been one of the, the guiding principles. When you look at other countries that are flexing their military, uh, to me, they will never succeed in accomplishing a more peaceful, stable world because they don't have the commitment towards democracy and good governance. I look at Russia's engagement globally. I look at what China's doing in the, in the seas. I look at North Korea. Uh, they certainly are, are not uh, countries that are uh, taking on international responsibility for a more peaceful and stable world. So what are the pillars that we should be using? What are the tools, as the chairman said, in order to accomplish our objectives? And, and I take a look at this, and I, and, and I come up with certain pillars that I think we really need to underscore. One is we have to work to form coalitions and partnerships. That's not easy. Americans are not always patient, but I think it's very important to work with other countries of like objectives. And that means that we have more credibility and more effectiveness in accomplishing our results. I think we need to continue our strong demand for nonproliferation of weapons of mass destruction, particularly nuclear weapons. We must make it clear that the use of our military should be used only when every other option has been explored. It should be the, a matter of, of, of last resort. And to me, the key pillar, and this will not come as a surprise to my colleagues, is that we need to prioritize and support good governance, democracy and basic human rights, transparency, any corruption, freedom of, of the press, uh, the ability to oppose the government without ending up in jail, uh, the uh, freedom of religion, the status of civil societies, to me, is always a good indication on how well a country is doing, free and fair elections, and a government that protects all of its people. And when leaders fail, to provide good governance, we see the consequences. We see the consequences in conflict, where innocent people are put at risk, and we see the flood of displaced individuals and refugees. We see a vacuum, which is, which is a breeding ground for radicalization and recruitment to terrorist organizations, uh, and we pay a heavy price for, for, for that. And just two examples. Uh, we are all concerned about the fate of Ukraine, Clearly, the culprit here is Russia and its interference in the independent country. And we have all spoken out, and we've gotten uh, Europe to, to work with us to try to isolate Russia. But Ukraine has to establish good governance, and they haven't been able to do that to date. And that's going to be critical for their, for their survival. And then in Syria, we know that the Assad regime cannot have the credibility. It doesn't represent all the people. As a result, we have not only a civil conflict, but we have breeding grounds for ISIL. So to me, a common thread is woven through much of the world's ills is a crisis in governance and an overt willingness to ignore the rule of law. And I really look forward to uh, the conversation we're having today with two of the real champions in the history of America on foreign policy. Well, we, uh, as we all, we're all very thrilled to have you. Um, Secretary Baker is, uh, to me, a model of public service, someone that uh, I've looked up to for a long time, and I really appreciate him taking his time to be with us today. I know he served in the public arena off and on uh, uh, multiple times uh, with great distinction. Tom Donilon, someone I've gotten to know over the course of, of uh, I guess, the first few years of the uh, Obama administration. And while I don't know him as well, I know he's highly esteemed, and we could not be more fortunate than to, to have the two of you here today. If you could. Um, if you would summarize your comments uh, in about five minutes, we're certainly not going to cut you off. 
Um, I've read your written testimony, and without objection, it'll be entered into the record. Um, so you can just summarize, uh, if you would, in about five minutes or so, and then we, we look forward to answer, asking questions. And if you would start, Secretary Baker, um, I would appreciate it. Microphone. And other distinguished members uh, of the committee, it's a real a pleasure for me uh, needless to say, to be once again back before this committee that I appeared before so many times when I was Secretary of State. Uh, I've been asked to keep these remarks brief, and I will, so that we can spend most of our time talking about the issues that you've articulated. Let me say a few words to begin about America's current role on the world stage and then suggest an approach on U.S. foreign policy that I think uh, is best suited for the country. Let me begin by putting America's uh, place in the world today into perspective. More than 70 years after the conclusion of World War II, the United States remains the strongest nation in the world, not just militarily. We have a dynamic and resilient economy. We do have the most powerful military in the world, and we have the widest array of strategic alliances ranging from NATO to ASEAN. Do we have problems? Indeed, we do. Domestically, our economy continues to sag. Internationally, we are losing some of the respect as a global leader that we earned over the course of decades. And as the current presidential election is demonstrating, Americans are losing faith in institutions from Washington to Wall Street that have aided our advancement over the years. At the same time, much of the rest of the world, countries like China, Brazil, and India, for instance, are catching up with us. But that's largely because they have adopted or are adopting our paradigm of free markets. And that should not, therefore, be viewed negatively, in my view, but as a positive trend because it is helping hundreds of millions of people rise from poverty. Still, it's my view, notwithstanding the fact that we've slipped a little in recent years, that we should remain the world's preeminent leader for the foreseeable future. We should accept that responsibility and not shrink from it. Because if we don't exercise power, other people will. We have simply too much at stake in the world today to walk away from it, even if we could. Other countries depend upon our leadership. This is most obviously true of our allies in Western Europe and East Asia and elsewhere. But frankly, even countries that are sometimes anything but friendly seek our engagement. Does that mean we're perfect? Of course not. But in the major global conflicts of the last century, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, the United States played a historic role in defeating imperialism and totalitarianism. So the question is, how should the United States engage in foreign policy? How do we formulate policies that best serve the United States as we begin to approach what many consider to be the end of the unipolar era? First of all, I want to say that in my view, and this has been my view uh, throughout my public service, uh, back, uh, back before I was Secretary of State, international leadership doesn't involve a choice between sending in the 101st Airborne or doing nothing. We can lead politically, diplomatically, and economically without putting American boots on the ground. I believe that the United States should chart a course based on a paradigm that I would refer to as selective engagement. 
This approach, which would continue the internationalism that our nation has embraced since 1945, would recognize that the United States has core interests in the world and that we should protect them. At the same time, it would also acknowledge the reality that our power is limited. Using selective engagement as a blueprint, we can identify America's vital interests in the world and then advance them using all of the tools available to our foreign policy, including our many strategic alliances, our economic clout, our diplomatic assets, and as a last resort, our military. So what are those vital interests? Well, they range from combating international terrorism to managing the emergence of China as a global power and from stemming the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction to expanding free trade. The approach I suggest does not fall easily into traditional categories of foreign policy, that is, either realism or idealism. I think it would contain and can contain the best elements of both, and it represents one of our most distinctive national characteristics. We are, after all, a practical people less interested in ideological purity than in solving problems. The practice of selective engagement should be informed by what I would refer to as a pragmatic idealism. While firmly grounded in values, selective engagement would understand and appreciate the complexity of the real world, which is a world of hard choices and painful trade-offs. This is the real world in which we must live and decide and act with due regard, of course, for our principles and our values. It would require that there be an overriding national interest at stake, particularly if any military action were contemplated. Such a balanced approach, Mr. Chairman, I believe can help us avoid both the cynicism of realism and the impracticality of idealism. It promises no easy answers or quick fixes. But such an approach does, I am convinced at least, offer our surest guide and our best hope for navigating this great country of ours safely through this precarious period of unparalleled risk and opportunity in world affairs. I look forward to addressing your questions. Thank you. National Security Advisor Donnelly. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, uh, for giving me the opportunity to be here today. It's a privilege to be here uh, next to Secretary Baker. Um, Secretary Baker is one of the most influential and honorable public servants of our time. Um, the title of one of his books uh, uh, quotes advice from his grandfather, which is entitled, Work Hard, Study, and Keep Out of Politics. Uh, as a country, we are fortunate that Secretary Baker didn't heed that advice, uh, in, my, uh, in my judgment. Um, the world today is characterized by an unusually large number of unstable and volatile situations. It's a level of volatility we haven't, we've only seen twice since World War II. And I think the volatility and instability is rooted in four broad political trends, which I'll describe briefly. Uh, first, uh, there's a systemic breakdown in st of state authority in the Middle East. Indeed, in the years since the Arab revolutions in early 2000, beginning in early 2011, a number of Arab states have become out-and-out -out failed states, uh, from Libya to Yemen to Syria, and a full range of other states have become at different stages of failure. Uh, they've lost the ability to control what goes on in their borders, to maintain a monopoly on the use of force. And as a result, vast ungoverned spaces exist across the region from Libya to Pakistan, creating power vacuums and paving the way for the rise of groups like ISIS. 
these upheavals have put extreme pressure on important U.S. partners and fueled an unprecedented migrant crisis in Europe, threatening the very integrity of the EU. The primary cause of this breakdown, in my judgment, is a profound failure of governance on the part of Arab regimes over a period of, of decades. And Ranking Member Cardin, you described this, I think. And this, this really is the root, I think, of what's going on in the Middle East today, a profound failure of governance. The second trend is the, is the reemergence of great power competition. For roughly 25 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the world enjoyed an era marked by productive and constructive relationships among and between the great powers. None of the great powers regarded each other as hostile or adversaries at that point. That period has ended, in my judgment. It ended in 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea. A third source of volatility is the global reaction to the profound economic and political transitions underway in China. For years, China and its unprecedented rise has served as an engine of global growth, global economic growth. And unsurprisingly then, the recent slowdown in the China economy has had a number of disruptive impacts. On the diplomatic and security fronts, the United States and China have continued to cooperate on a number of significant issues like climate change in Iran and North Korea. That said, China's provocative behavior in the South China Sea, including the, the militarization of land formations, is significantly destabilizing. The United States and China have to get this relationship right. As Professor Graham Allison, who's testified in front of this committee on a number of occasions, has noted, over history, the dynamic between established powers and rising powers, emerging powers, in terms of outcome, most likely has ended in war. This is a classic Thucydides trap. But in my judgment, international relations, of course, is not a subset of physics. And our, and our country's leaders on both sides can avoid conflict through steady engagement and concerted effort to avoid strategic miscalculation. The last trend I'll mention is the geopolitical impact of sustained low oil prices since mid-2014. The impacts have been vast, and they have been substantial, and will be long-lasting, in my judgment. Oil exporting nations that lack significant financial reserves, like Venezuela, Nigeria, Iraq, have been severely pressured. And even exporting nations with significant reserves, such as the Gulf states and Russia, have come under serious economic strain. Indeed, just in the last week, we've seen Saudi Arabia announce a major re uh, reorientation of their economy. Now, some look at this increasing volatile and uh, unstable environment and draw a simple conclusion, and I agree with Secretary Baker on this, uh, and I reject this thesis, that the United States and its ability to shape the world are in decline. Again, I, fa I flatly reject that, no that notion. The idea that America is in decline does not stand up to any rigorous analysis of our national balance sheet of strategic strength. No nation can match our comprehensive set of, endure of enduring strengths, including a resilient and diverse economy, bountiful resources, a unique global network of alliances, unmatched military strength, a culture of entrepreneurship and innovation, and a long record of international leadership. The extreme pessimism we hear in some quarters and the general lack of appreciation of U.S. strengths is not only inaccurate, my judgment is dangerous because it leads you to poor policy choices. Now, I'll close with just listing four or five challenges for the next president. First, economic growth. Uh, there are not a lot of iron laws in history, but one of them certainly is that no nation can maintain its, dip, its diplomatic or military primacy without maintaining its economic vitality. Our economy has recovered significantly since the 2008 crash, but continued insecurity, economic insecurity, is a fueling calls for retrenchment, which would both undercut U.S. global leadership and weaken our economy. To maintain our prosperity, there are a number of things that we can do, including investing in national infrastructure, defend, uh, defending our edge in R&D, and supporting long, our long-term demographic advantage through a sensible immigration policy. The bottom line here is that the most important 
national security challenge for the next president is to maintain and extend economic growth and prosperity in the United States. Second, terrorism, and I'll finish up here. We have significantly reduced the threat from al-Qaeda, and we are successfully pressuring uh, ISIS in Syria and Iraq. But the overall terrorist threat has evolved and metastasized, and frankly, I think the terror threat has entered a new and dangerous phase. ISIS is moving to an external focus with respect to its threat. It's expanding into other regions and attempting to carry out attacks in Europe and around the world. The return of foreign fighters to Europe and the attacks on Paris and Brussels have highlighted how unprepared Europe is to address this threat. Despite the transnational nature of the terrorist threat, European responses remain cloistered behind national borders. We must press them to do better. My own judgment is that the failure of Europe to successfully deal with the terrorist threat in terms of information sharing, intelligence sharing, securing the borders, putting appropriate resources at, uh, against this problem is a, a clear and present danger to the United States. Third, cybersecurity. Every year, Americans rely more on goods and services that are connected to the Internet. These advances represent a tremendous boon for our economy, but they also increase our exposure to cyber attacks by sophisticated state and non-state actors. President Obama has asked me to chair a national commission on enhancing national cybersecurity, and we'll be putting our report uh, in December. And it's really a transition report for the next president with respect to a, a look at this uh, problem for the next five to ten years. Uh, next is uh, Asia. Uh, and my judgment is that the next president should build on President Obama's rebalance to Asia. Our alliance system in Asia remains rock solid, but our allies seek even greater U.S. engagement, as Secretary Baker indicated, in the region economically, militarily, and diplomatically. Ratifying the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which is the economic centerpiece of our rebalance, is central to cementing our leadership in the region. And last, North Korea presents, in my judgment, the most serious security challenge we face in Asia and the most serious proliferation challenge we face globally. North Korea has undertaken, in the words of one analyst, a nuclear sprint in recent months, seeking an ICBM that could reach the United States with a miniaturized nuclear weapon. In my judgment, the situation in North Korea is on a path to become a first-class crisis for the United States and its allies. With that, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude. Look forward to your questions. And again, uh, Secretary, it's a real privilege uh, to be here with you today. Well, it's a privilege for both for us to have both of you. We thank you for your opening comments. Uh, out of respect for the committee, I'm going to reserve my time for interjections and begin with Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, I, and I concur uh, on um, the opportunity of having both of these individuals with us today. And again, I thank you for your service and I thank you for your for your statements. I want to drill down on the point that you made, Mr. Donnellan, but also Secretary Baker. And that is the observation of the lack of good governance in the Middle East, uh, providing the wherewithal that we're, we've now moved towards failed states. And admittedly, there was outside interference. There was outside interference in Yemen. There was outside interference in Libya. And we know what the Syrian problems. Uh, we know Iran's activities. Uh, all that has contributed uh, to the lack of stability uh, and the failure of governments in, the, in these countries. Uh, and then this past week, we had a hearing on Sub-Saharan Africa and the terrorist networks that are operating in Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's spreading, uh, and the risk of failed states in Africa is, is pretty dramatic. Uh, I guess my point is that what, what should the United States be doing in an effort to try to deal with the governance structure? We've moved from autocratic countries that have not been able to transition into democratic countries. Uh, under, uh, for at least for a while, the, the autocratic systems were working, but long term they won't work. 
So uh, is there something in our toolbox? I mean, I look at the, the, what we have available to us. Uh, our uh, diplomacy budgets and our development assistance budgets have certainly much smaller than our defense budgets. Uh, do we have enough resources? Are we using them properly? Are there a better way of focus on how we can have a more consequential impact on the uh, transition of countries, particularly in that, in that region, to a more inclusive uh, government that can prevent the type of violence that we've seen? You want me to take a shot at that? I'll be glad to, Senator. Sure. First of all, I think it's today less a question of what should we be doing, perhaps, than what we should not have done and should not repeat. When we take down an autocrat, it's great. It's in, it's in keeping with our principles and values and on the whole, generally speaking, can be beneficial to the citizens of the country that, that he or she is, is, uh, is uh, imposing upon. But we need to be thinking about what comes next. We shouldn't be so quick to come in and get rid of, get rid of uh, leaders that we don't agree with 1,000% of the time. If you look at what's, what's happened in Libya, what we, what we did there were pales in comparison to what the Europeans did, but we did assist. President Obama, uh, Tom will know this a lot better than I, but I don't think President Obama really wanted to do that. But he was convinced that we needed to contribute, and we did, and we contributed air assets. And so we took Gaddafi down. Everybody would say, well, that's wonderful. He was a brutal tyrant. It was wonderful, wonderful, great. But you don't do that without thinking a little bit about what comes next. We have the same situation in Egypt when we when we bailed out on uh, Hosni Mubarak, who'd been a wonderful ally of this country for a long time, and by the way, very good on the Arab-Israeli uh, problem. And so we ended up with the Muslim Brotherhood, and that became a real problem, and now we've got a military uh, dictatorship back in, e in Egypt, but at least we have some stability. We have the same situation to some extent in Iraq. Uh, it was good to get rid of Saddam Hussein, but we, we should have perhaps done a better job of thinking about what we we're going to put in place after he left. These areas that are failed states are failed states primarily because we went in there, or, or at least in part, and upset the, <laughs> the order because we didn't like the people that were running the show and shouldn't have liked them. But, but we need to do a better job of thinking about what comes next before. So, Right now, my, my view, and I don't know whether Tom shares this or not, with respect, let's say, to Syria, it may be, it may be a little bit too late. Uh, it's too bad that we didn't support uh, uh, what the Turks wanted, which was a, a, a no-fly zone along the northern border of, of Syria there, the border with Turkey. If, we had been, if we'd been willing to go along with that, I don't know why we could not have negotiated with, that, with, the, with the Turks the Saudis, the Emiratis, the, U the Kuwaitis, the all the, the, our other friends in the region, a deal where we would say, look, we'll furnish the air and the intelligence and the logistics. You put the boots on the ground, and we'll take care of this Syrian problem. And we won't have the emergence of ISIS. Now, it's, you know, maybe it's too late to do that. Maybe it's not. Maybe we could generate some sort of a coalition like that, but I think that's the thing, that's what we should have done. Uh, and, and I agree with your point, particularly the use of our military, uh, without having a game plan what comes next, that's not what America should be investing. 
recognizing, though, that long-term we need more open governments, is there something that we're missing in our uh, action to give a better chance for a more democratic system to well, you exist? Can't, you, can't, you can't expect the emergence of a democratic system in a society that's been authoritarian for the entire uh, term of its existence unless you have stability. So you, 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 you should not expect it to happen if, you're, if by your actions you're going to eliminate the stability that exists. I agree with that. that. That's all I'm saying. Mr. Donnelly? I agree. They, uh, a couple things here. Uh, it's important for us to stress governance as part of our approach uh, to, these, to these problems. Uh, essentially, the, uh, you know, the situation in Iraq is in many ways uh, underscores the point. The situation in Iraq arose because the Maliki government was a sectarian authoritative, authoritarian government and wasn't inclusive, and it was a profound failure of governments with respect to including Sunnis. We had a governance failure, if you will, in the deterioration of the Iraqi security forces. Um, and part of the solution today in Iraq, and I'm very worried about Iraq today, I think we've made a lot of progress against ISIS um, uh, in terms of our military effort, uh, really serious uh, pro uh, progress, but we have, still have a looming governance crisis in Iraq, in my, in my judgment. I think a body instincts are in the right direction, but we have a really serious pressure on that situation. So underscoring the importance of governance, for example, in a situation uh, like Iraq, and I know we're doing that, and Ambassador McGurk and others are working on this, is a very important piece of any of our, any of our strategies going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both very much, Senator Rand, Senator Rand Paul. Secretary Baker, I enjoyed your testimony, uh, particularly the discussion of uh, the ideas of selective engagement um, and the talk of regime change. Uh, you know, the president has now admitted really that it was a mistake to topple Gaddafi in Libya, but he sort of says, well, it wasn't necessarily a mistake to do it. It was just a mistake not to be prepared to create a country out of nothing and put, I guess, massive amounts of resources and create a nation in Libya. And so I think there are a couple of possibilities. One is, well, maybe you shouldn't do it to begin with. And then the other is, well, we do it and then we have massive resources and we, we create nations. And I think, you know, then the question is, how do we create democracy in the Middle East? But I think if there's no tradition, thousands of years of autocratic rule. I mean, I think people don't realize that in our country, one of the amazing things about the American Revolution is we had representative government for 150 years before that, but we had an 800-year tradition of it. Yeah. And we had continuity of that. And we think we can just blow up Gaddafi, and all of a sudden, out of that, Thomas Jefferson will get elected. And I think it's a naive notion, but it needs to go back to not that we need to be better prepared. Maybe sometimes the selective engagement should be this is a time we shouldn't select to militarily engage. But I think it's, it's important also, and I'd like to hear your comments with, with Assad also, because it's the same sort of situation. And then the only other thing I'd mix into that to see if you'd comment on it is that I think ultimately the solution in, in Syria is not saying, well, Russia can be no part of it. I think Russia's got a base there and been there 50 years, probably engaging Russia on a solution to Syria um, may be part of the answer. They, have, they absolutely have to be a part of it, and so does Iran. I mean, the idea that we could uh, come to some sort of, a, of an accommodation or agreement with respect to the future of Syria without having those two players is, is ridiculous. Uh, I think, Tom, you'd probably agree with that. And so, I mean, I, I, th I think we can have bipartisan agreement on that. Uh, that would be, uh, they got to be at the table. If you're going to have a, and, and that's, I think, what, uh, what Secretary Kerry is now trying to uh, bring about. Some sort of an agreement or negotiation that would uh, that would uh, tend to to uh, improve the situation, 
but you're quite right in your comment about selective engagement. That's why I like the that's why I like the paradigm because you look look at each one of these discrete and specific foreign policy problems uh, through the prism of the national our national interest and our principles and values, and you say to yourself, okay, if we take this action, where where's it going to land? Where's it going to lead? What's it going to lead to? And decide then if that's that, that's the way a president ought to approach. Uh, approach these things uh, and, and look at the where where it's where the vital national interests of the country are at stake. You might decide to even go as far as the military. If that's if if it's if you don't get to that point, you still have the tools of the, our our uh, a political, economic, and diplomatic engagement. Well, I, I like the idea of the guiding principle being our vital national interest. But to me, I think sometimes we, we too quickly jump to that as the conclusion, because then that's a debate. What is in our vital national interest? And I think w what becomes important there is that Congress have a role in this, because our founding fathers didn't want to give all the power to the executive. No, but they, they dispersed but they the power. Most, they gave most of it to the president. I mean, I'm a creature of the executive branch, so you have to understand my bias. But the president has for certain foreign policy powers, I think, that were given to, to him by the by the founding fathers, I'm sorry to interrupt. But I would just say also that even President Obama admitted when he ran for office that no president should unilaterally go to war without the authority of Congress. President George W. Bush came twice, both in Iraq and for the 9-11 use of authorization of force. My point is, is that in determining what is in our national interest, if we have debate, then we can get to what is actually in our national interest. But yes. that means that Congress has to retain some authority and that we should ask Congress's permission before going to war, particularly Libya. He should have come and asked. My guess is the debate would have been very messy, but maybe we wouldn't have gone into Libya. Gaddafi might still be there, might still have problems, but we wouldn't have chaos. I, I certainly agree with that, Senator Paul. It's always best if the, if the legislative and executive branches are on the same wavelength when you start, talk, start talking about sending our young men and women into harm's way. So it, whenever it's possible, there, the president should come to the Congress and seek their approval. You know, in the first Gulf War, uh, I'm convinced that President Bush 41 would, would he, we had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, and it was extraordinarily unpopular to do what we were beginning to do, about getting ready to do. And the only way we got approval of Congress was to go first to the, to the Security Council of the UN and get a uh, use of force resolution by them. Still, President Bush took, brought the matter, President Bush 41, to the Congress. But I want to tell you something. Had the Congress turned him down, I still think he would have done what he did. Uh, I don't think we'll ever resolve that issue of who has the ultimate power, the commander-in-chief or, the, or uh, Congress's ability to declare war. Well, one of the exceptions that is granted by almost everybody on whatever side of this issue you're on is that if we're under imminent threat, you know, if there are missiles being launched against us, obviously the commander-in-chief would want to have the power to make an imminent response. And the president said this in 2007 when he ran, unless there's an imminent threat. And when I questioned him on Libya, he said, yes, there was an imminent threat to Benghazi. And I was perplexed by that answer because I always thought an imminent threat was to the United States, not to a foreign city. Because if we make the standard that an imminent threat to any city around the world would be okay for the president to unilaterally begin a war because any city around the world was under imminent threat, I think that would be a standard that would be absurd. I mean, wouldn't you recognize the standard at least to be that the imminent threat would be to the United States or to a military base of ours or to some sort of asset of ours? 
Well, yes, but if you look at Article 51 of the UN Charter, it says that uh, any country that, uh, that feels they need uh, assistance can call on another UN member state to assist them. And, and that's exactly what happened when we went into Kuwait to kick, kick Iraq out of Kuwait. It wasn't an imminent threat to the United States. There was no imminent threat. To, there was no threat to the United States at all. We went into, you know, the surest and best test of a great power is if you have to act unilaterally, you, you do so. Always best to, to, to act multilaterally. I know we would agree on that. But that's the, sure, that, that's the best test of a great power if, he ha if it has to act unilaterally. We went into Panama with nobody's consent. Okay, they were brutalizing our servicemen down there, and we and and we we invaded, we took it over, we grabbed Noriega and brought him back to the United States. So there are circumstances when that is appropriate, I think. O on balance, it's always better for the executive and legislative to be in sync, and to and for the United States to act with allies. Thank you, and I would just hope that it would be uh, more likely to be the exception than the rule. <laughs> I just, uh, just to add a, just sure. to a couple things to Senator Paul's question. Number one, in the analysis, as Secretary Baker said, uh, there are a lot of policy options between an invasion and doing nothing, right? And that has to be part of the analysis as you, as you measure up your, you know, the, how your interests are implicated and then match them up with the uh, uh, activities that you undertake. Number two, I agree with respect to Syria, and that President Obama and Secretary Kerry are deeply engaged in, that a political solution there is, is, is first best. And we're working on that, obviously, with the Russians uh, uh, specifically. But third, it is important, uh, and we talk about governance and we talk about a lot of the other things that we, that we need to do as a nation. It is important to understand that we have a really serious security problem with ISIS. Uh, and we will not be settling the problem with ISIS at a peace conference. Uh, and the United States is going to have to lead uh, an effort uh, to eliminate, eliminate that threat. And it's going to be through force, unfortunately. And last, I agree with Secretary Baker, obviously, is that uh, we have all manner of obligations around the world, including obligations to our allies and partners and coalitions, which, which, which um, obligate, us, obligate us to act uh, with force if sometimes necessary. The only quick response I would make to that is, with regard to ISIS, we have to ask the question, are they bigger and stronger because of our involvement in pushing Assad back and creating a space for allowing them to grow, or would they be less likely to be a threat if Assad were still stronger? I might have my first interjection here. I, I, I couldn't agree more. We, I don't think we should have done what we did in Libya, opposed it, and I thought the president used a really cute, uh, we weren't involved in hostilities moment to, uh, to do that. I also uh, thought we were way too quick to overthrow a long-term ally in Egypt or be a part of that. I couldn't agree more. Where I thought Senator Paul may go was when you do selectively end up engaging in war, uh, Senator Secretary Baker, what is the best way to ensure that you're successful? Well, <laughs> I'm biased, but I would uh, submit, uh, Mr. Chairman, that a textbook example of the way to go to war is the way President Bush 41 went to war in the first Gulf War. He said that he told the world what he was going to do. He then went out and got the rest of the world behind his effort to do it to the extent that for the first time ever, he was able to get a use of force resolution out of a UN Security Council against a UN member state. He then came up here on the Hill, and it was very unpopular at the time, but he, he narrowly got a vote of the Senate by 52 to 48 supporting it, and a vote of the House by a larger, a larger margin. He went out and he put 
uh, overwhelming force on the ground to make sure that what he was going to do would be successful. He went in, he did exactly what he said he was going to do, and no more. Did not go to Baghdad the way a lot of people were pushing on him to do. And, and, uh, and, and won the war in whatever it was, a few, a few weeks, uh, with, at the time, minimal casualties. And, and then guess what? He got other people to pay for the war. Now, that's the way to fight a war. The United States, that war cost $70 million, and the United States paid 10 billion, I'm sorry, $70 billion, and the United States paid 10 billion. And other people, the people who we were helping paid the balance. I submit to you that's the way to go to war. Uh, certainly, you need to make sure that when you undertake that, that effort that you've got the forces available necessary to get the job done, get it done, do that and no more, come on home. Thank you very much. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and I appreciate you having this hearing so we can have a 30,000-foot view of American uh, foreign policy and a chance to reflect on where we are and uh, where we are potentially headed, and I appreciate Secretary Baker and uh, Security Advisor Donilon for being here. I, I think uh, you both have seen American po uh, foreign policy uh, and its challenges uh, from both sides of the last quarter century, pre and post September 11th. Uh, and we all know the geopolitical developments that have led us uh, to where we are and the importance of ensuring that foreign policy, as exhibited uh, by both of you gentlemen at the table, ends at the water's edge. Uh, and in that respect, when I was chairman of this committee, uh, Senator Corker and I and other members uh, on both sides worked across the aisle, most notably when we gave, uh, we came back over, brought everybody back over Labor Day weekend in 2014 and uh, drafted and passed an authorization for the use of military force that gave President Obama a credible option as he went to the G20 summit to get uh, Russia to engage Assad in stopping the use of chemical weapons against his own people. And I think that was a high watermark for the committee in terms of uh, its abilities. And we acted in the spirit of bipartisanship that I think is incredibly important. But I'd like to hear your perceptions uh, from my uh, view at the core of uh, the foreign policy debate unfolding today is the principle in some iteration of intervention. Uh, aggressive intervention without clear goals, uh, particularly in the view of the aftermath, as Secretary uh, Baker has suggested, has led us to wars that have destabilized entire regions and cost us immeasurable blood, immeasurable blood and national treasure. Tepid uh, intervention without the credible threat of consequences, whether they are diplomatic, economic, or military, uh, can affect our influence and our ability to shape the world. And isolationism, which is a dangerous uh, new view emerging in these presidential debates, only in my view will create the type of permissive environment in which our enemies will thrive, because history has taught us time and time again that nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, what would fill the vacuum of a decreased U.S. role in the world is an incredibly dangerous question. So I see that Secretary Baker in his testimony foreshadowed what he called the end of a unipolar era. And Mr. Donnellan, in your testimony, you very directly counted the idea that America's in decline. But as I travel uh, throughout the world, I get the perception around the world that the United States is stepping back from its role as the last superpower. And whether that's true or not, it's a dangerous perception that emboldens our enemies. If the current political discourse is the standard by which we ought to judge the differences in uh, the views, uh, 
I, I worry. I certainly cannot believe that building walls, deporting religious and ethnic minorities, returning to torture or worse, or turning our backs on disarming the world of nuclear weapons is the course that we see as the best for the United States. And frankly, uh, the idea of burden shifting uh, remains equally perplexing to me in a world where the burden is on us to protect our own interests and project our values. So I wonder uh, if uh, both of you, and uh, I look at the Rhodes uh, profile, uh, and I don't know how much truth there is in all of that, but it certainly worries me that messaging is sometimes more important than substance and that the nature of witnesses that come before this committee or that speak to the American people uh, create a misperception or a misleading uh, that I personally never bought into, but I certainly worry about it. So in the context of all of that, I wonder if you both uh, would share your views uh, as to a foreign policy of shifting burden to other nations. That mean, doesn't mean responsible sharing of burdens, but the shifting of burdens to other nations. Does that not create a potential for the loss of influence in the world? Uh, what's, what's the role of, in, in the pragmatic view of democracy, human rights, and the rule of law? Sometimes I think we shortchange that because in the pragmatic short-term process, that creates a potential benefit. But in the long-term process, uh, we often uh, let situations fester that become bigger problems. And what about the international order? In the post-World uh, War uh, and Cold War, we came to a view that there were certain international uh, standards by which the world could come together on and agree, and that violation of those standards would create consequences. Is that? dissipating that concept of international orders in which we uh, can expect other countries uh, to join with us in enforcing those international orders and having consequences when those uh, international values and standards are violated. I'd like to hear your perspectives on those. Want me to go? Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, Senator, uh, I don't think it's unreasonable for the United States, given our track record, to uh, ask our allies particularly to live up to their commitments, for instance, to spend 2% of their GDP uh, on their NATO on defense so that NATO is sufficiently strong and so that NATO remains uh, the most successful security alliance in history, which I happen to believe it has been. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. And, and, the, and the fact of the matter is, as, uh, as uh, Tom Donlan has said, the biggest challenge, I think, facing the country today, the biggest foreign, foreign policy challenge, or any challenge, is our economy. You cannot be strong economically, politically, diplomatically if you're not strong economically, if you're, if you're not uh, militarily, if you're not strong economically. In his first term, President Obama asked me uh, and, and a couple of other people, what is the biggest, what, what, what should be my number one priority? I think you were there. And I said, Mr. President, in my view, your number one priority, I think he thought I was going to come back with Iran or something or North Korea or something, uh, having been a Secretary of State, <laughs> but I've also been Secretary of the Treasury. And I said, Mr. President, I think your biggest 
uh, your number one priority ought to be the restoration of our economic strength. I still believe that. I still believe that we will not be able to do what we need to do around the world. We will not be able to remain this pre uniquely preeminent world power. We will not be able to continue to lead internationally if, we, if our economy doesn't remain strong. And I mean back the way it used to be in terms of growth. We're not there. So that, that's one thing we have to do. Well, uh, to the extent that we bear an undue share of the burden of, of stability and peace in the world, that's not fair for American uh, taxpayers. It's not fair for, American, for the American people. So I don't think there's anything at all wrong with saying that more of the burden ought to be shared by, particularly by our allies. I, and I don't think that's, uh, that's going to take us down, down the wrong word, road. Of course, our foreign policy should always be informed by our principles and values, democracy and the promotion of democracy and free markets. But we have to be smart about how we do it. But I really believe that, that it's not, uh, it is certainly not unreasonable for us to say to, our, to, to the people that we have been carrying the load for, hey, it's time for you to come in here and help, care, and help carry this load. Just to, just to clarify, I wasn't talking about NATO where I totally agree with you. By burden shifting, I'm not talking about just the monetary elements, but taking regions like the Middle East, let's say, and say largely. Taking leadership of the, right. well, you know, that, doesn't, that hasn't worked out very well in my experience. I remember uh, uh, when uh, we were, when I was Secretary of State and we'd been dealing with the end of the Cold War, the Madrid Peace Conference, the war in Iraq, the war in Panama, and all of these issues, uh, the unification of Germany, and, uh, and things began to fall apart in Yugoslavia. And our European allies came to us and said, we want the leadership here. You, and we said, please, have at it. We've had more than enough on our plate. And we turned it over to them. And they split like a cubby of quail. I mean, they all went their own way. And, and so sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes you need leadership from the uniquely preeminent power in the world. People appreciate it when America leads. They carp at us, there's some resentment, there's some jealousy, but they want to see us lead and they appreciate it when we do lead. It's, it's interesting, I think on, the, on that point, um, a couple of things. You know, the, the burden of leadership in really pursuing our interests in the world does require us to continue to have a presence around the world. But that presence provides deterrence, which is short of conflict, which is where we want to be. That presence uh, provides reassurance uh, to, uh, to allies uh, and friends around the world. That presence, for example, in Northeast Asia and elsewhere, and Northeast Asia is an example of that. With respect to our nuclear umbrella, is absolutely critical in terms of preserving the norms on nonproliferation and nuclear and the nuclear side. So uh, we do have a kind of an irreducible um, demand, I think, for our presence uh, and investment around uh, and around the world. And you know, the demand signal for U.S. leadership is increasing, not decreasing around the world. Uh, and I think it's, up to, it's important for us to meet that, uh, to meet that demand signal. Um, and we have a lot of tools in the toolbox that we can talk about during the course of this, this hearing. And, and, you know, and one of those is obviously deterrence and presence and various guarantees that we can give, but also 
um, you know, coalitions that do things like put sanctions on. You know, Iran is a good example of that. You're more familiar with this Senator, than, than anybody. And again, with, the, with your help and the help of the Congress, we in fact had a very successful sanctions effort with respect to pressuring Iran to come to the table and leading to, a, uh, and leading to an agreement with respect to their nuclear, their nuclear uh, uh, capability. But that coalition building, hard work over time, uh, was, a, uh, was an important part of, of, of it. And it, was, and it would not have happened, last thing I'll say, it would not have happened without U.S. leadership. Uh, without U.S. leadership, we will not pursue these proliferation agendas. We will not provide the balance that we need in Asia. We will not provide the reassurance. We won't lead on, there will, there will not be global trade agreements without U.S. leadership. It's the burden that we bear uh, as the most important country in the world. And as both Secretary Baker and I said, uh, a fair assessment of our balance sheet of strategic assets and liabilities uh, would uh, lead you to believe that with the right policies, choices, and leadership, that will continue to be the most important and po most powerful and influential nation in the world for a long time to come. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you both. Just to continue to build on this line, uh, if you could just, obviously people in around the country are looking at our own economic struggles here at home. They see our commitments abroad, both in treasure and in lives and in blood and people coming back wounded and so forth. And so there's always this fundamental question of whether why doesn't everyone else do more? Why, why are we committed to these things? Why are we 70, 60 years after the end of the Second World War still engaged in Asia and providing uh, defense assistance to Japan and South Korea? Why do we need NATO anymore? These are rich countries. They should be able to pay for their own defense. And so I, I would ask both of you to describe a world in which NATO lost its way or perhaps even disintegrated and a world where Japan and South Korea lost U.S. commitment. What, what would the world look like if our, what would the strategic environment look like in Asia, for example, if the U.S. nuclear umbrella no longer covered Japan and South Korea? And what would the world look like if NATO substantially was diminished or even disintegrated? Well, it would be far less stable. You would have many, many more. We, we've got a lot of, as Tom and I have both said, we've got a lot of problems today, but you'd have a hell of a lot more if that were the case. Uh, and and these, these commitments that we have around the world uh, promote U.S. security uh, because to the extent that things, you know, ever since the end of World War II, our security uh, alliances with Japan and South Korea have been the foundation and the basis for peace and stability in the Pacific. Uh, NATO has been the foundation and the base for, uh, uh, for peace and stability in, uh, in Europe and on the Eurasian continent. But some would say, some have suggested, why don't you just let Japan and South Korea get their own nuclear weapons and, and let them defend I, themselves? I, I, I think that, that the more countries that acquire nuclear weapons, the more instability there's going to be in the world, in my opinion. If you look at what, if you look at the way North Korea is using its nuclear capabilities, that's all it's got. That's its threat. That's, a, that's its big card, but it, and it plays it. And, uh, and, and ever since the end of World War II, America has led the fight against the nonproliferation of, wep of nuclear weapons, weapons that can kill millions and millions of people. We ought not to abandon that fight. That would not promote stability. That would promote instability. Senator Ruby, I think this is a really important thought experiment, right, and an analytical exercise, I think, is to, is to think about what would happen if, in fact, that these norms and institutions and United States-led operations weren't there, right? Um, 
And Asia, I think, as Secretary Baker said, you know, for 70 years, we've invested in a platform in Asia on which Asia's prosperity and economic development has been built. And if you do the thought experiment, do you really see over the last three quarters of a century the spread of democracy in Asia? Would you have seen uh, that, that, that prosperity uh, in Asia? Uh, and I think absent that, you would have seen a proliferation of nuclear weapons in Asia, absent the United States presence and absent the United States reassurance to those countries and the building the platform on which the social and economic development has been, uh, you know, has, has been built. And uh, NATO is another example of this, of course. It's been tremendously successful. You know, we sit here today and we take for granted, it's in some ways a memory problem. We take for granted that Europe is stable, peaceful, and prosperous. Uh, that's not the history of Europe. Uh, absent uh, the kinds of institutions that were put in place, and it should never be taken for granted uh, that, these are, that, these are, that these are permanent situations, absent uh, really tending to them on a constant basis. So I think the thought experiment you asked us to do is a really important one, and I think the outcomes are clear. Yeah, it's not just a thought experiment. It's actually been proposed. But oh. um, uh, let me just talk about the, uh, but for purposes of this committee, it's a thought experiment. Just to be clear, I don't support neither, doing that. I just want to revisit this Libya-Syria situation for a moment, because I think it's sometimes misconstrued. We didn't start the uprising in Libya, and we didn't start the uprising in Syria. The Syrian people stood up against Assad, actually peacefully at the beginning, and then were met with violence. And the people of Libya stood up to Muammar Gaddafi. And I think there's a very compelling argument to be made that in both cases, neither one of those leaders were going to be able to hold on to power in the long term unless they did what Qaddafi uh, was going to do, and Assad is doing now, and that is massacre people in order to hold on to power. And so I think there was a valid argument to be made at the time that if you had foresight, you would say to yourself, these dictators are in trouble. The only way they can hold on to power is to massacre people. If they do so, it is going to lead to chaos and instability. And in the Middle East, chaos and instability in any part of, the, of that region is the basic ingredient necessary for Islamic radical jihadists to come in and take advantage of that environment. And uh, so I think it's just important when we talk about that situation to remind ourselves that these were not efforts by the U.S. government to go in and overthrow dictators. It is the people of those countries that stood up against them. It is now our, we now had to make a decision about what would be in our best interest if you were able to think three steps forward. In the case of Gaddafi, if he had gone into Benghazi, massacred all those people, while you would see emerge there would have been all these militias taking up arms, uh, staying in perpetuity, leading to the kind of instability we see now anyways. But, but it's an accurate assessment to say that we didn't start that. We were left to now analyze what is the best thing forward for us to do within our national interest. And I made the argument at the time and continue to stand by those arguments that it was in our national interest to ensure that uh, whatever resistance there was to those dictators would be made up of people more stable whom we could work with, because in the absence of those sorts of elements, that vacuum would be filled by the radical elements that have now filled those vacuums in the absence of our leadership. But that's not what happened, Senator. Oh, I agree. It's not what happened. I mean, and they, yes, the people were beginning to stand up, but we, en we enabled it to happen by using our military force to go in there and remove those dictators. Same thing in Iraq. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't suggest that this is not a bipartisan problem. It's a bipartisan problem. But look where we are in all three of those places, Syria, Iraq, uh, Libya. Would we have been there had we not done those things? I'm not sure we would have. I, I, in fact, I don't think we would have. Now, you don't believe that, uh, you, you believe Assad would have crushed the rebellion against them and recaptured control of the entire country? I'm not sure whether that would have happened or not. 
but I guarantee you that I don't think that we would have the situation that we uh, that we have today. You know, for years we used Saddam Hussein against Iran. When I was Secretary of State, we worked with Saddam Hussein. We finally ended up fighting a war with him, but we worked with him, trying to bring him into the community of nations. But he was our buffer against the interests of Iran. You know what the you know the most important country today in in uh, in Iraq is not the United States with our humongous big in embassy there it's Iran, most important outside power in Iraq today is Iran, and and I don't think the Libyan I didn't it's not my view that the Libyan people were going to be able to throw Gaddafi over unless we and the Europeans of course they were the real movers did, went in there and did it. Sure, but you would have had a protracted conflict within that country that would have served as a magnet for radical jihadists to come in and do what they're doing now. Well, as more of a magnet than what we got no. now with a failed state? Sure, but the same, and that's the point. We should have empowered elements there, potentially, to provide some level of stability after the fact. That obviously didn't yeah, happen. Yeah, we should have. We started the conflict. We didn't follow through. It left the vacuum. The vacuum's now been filled by ISIS in the northern part of the country. The same is true now in Syria. We should have done that in all three of the places. I, we agree. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very, uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. This has been fascinating. Thank you both for your time. Um, I, I want to continue to probe this question of what American leadership means today. And you know, of course, your ability to lead is only as good as the effectiveness of the tools that are in your kit. Yeah. And, and so I, I just want to ask some questions about whether we are today properly resourced to deal with the way in which our adversaries are trying to project their power. And I think this is a version of the question that Senator Cardin was asking. And let me maybe pose it through the prism of Ukraine. So uh, Russia has clearly militarily invaded Ukraine, but its end goal, I think, is not to march on Kyiv or to militarily own that country, is to use its military power in order to politically and economically ruin that country. And it's doing all sorts of other things, uh, whether it be bribery, graft, intimidation, energy bullying, to try to get what it wants there. Um, and yet, all of our conversation here has largely been about whether or not we arm the Ukrainians with military assets. We've had a panoply of responses, but the most significant has been the deployment of two brigades to shore up our allies. And it just seems to me as if we simply don't have the non-military resources to try to play the game that the Russians are playing in a place like that, that we, you know, we don't have the ability to offer substantial energy assistance to try to answer the question of dependence on Russian oil, that we, you know, we bleed out a little bit of money for anti-corruption efforts in places like Kyiv, but we don't have the ability to do that on a large scale. So in a world in which our military strength is still unchallenged, what should we be thinking about in terms of the other tools that project American power that will eventually win the day? And, and is you know, the fight in Ukraine an example of a place in which we maybe just don't have uh, the influencers that we need in order to protect uh, that country. Well, I didn't hear you mention uh, sanctions, which right. are which are having an effect, and right. they're quite they're quite uh, strong sanctions, and I believe they're 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 having some uh, significant effect on the Russian economy. You know, you're talking to somebody here who was 
who drafted the Budapest Memorandum, or at least maybe I didn't draft the actual document, but we negotiated that at the end of the, of the Cold War. The Ukraine, we're, I was trying to get the, U, the Ukrainians to get rid of their nukes, okay? And they said, no, no, we don't want to get rid of our nukes. I said, what, what in the world? In this new environment, what are you afraid of? They said, we're afraid of the Russians. So we said, well, we'll fix that. We'll get the Russians to give you an ironclad guarantee that they will respect your territorial integrity and independence. <laughs> and we got it. It was called the Budapest Memorandum, and look where it is. So uh, I, I don't think we have an absence of tools, really. I think that because we cannot act there, should not act there unilaterally, that we have to act with our European allies, and bringing them along is a lot more difficult than acting alone, I think that's why, was, why we're having the difficulty we're having. But we, we should not be, be just should sit back and if you don't like what's happening in another country, roll the tanks, which is what Russia has done here. Yeah. I mean, that's outrageous. And now, and now they're, they're doing barrel rolls around our uh, aircraft and buzzing our ships in the Baltic Sea. And so uh, I think we got the tools. It's a question of whether we have the political will with the European, whether European allies to use them. Would you? I agree. Uh, you know, Senator, I, I think we do have the tools. And um, so with respect to Europe, there's a NATO summit coming up in July. Uh, and I think it needs to be a broad look at the, at the uh, functions and capabilities of NATO, taking into account what Russia has been up to. Russia has essentially been up to a kind of a multidimensional covert hybrid war effort in Ukraine. Uh, and we need to ensure that we have NATO to ha that has the kinds of capabilities and assets that it needs to push back on those kinds of, um, those kinds of uh, uh, threats, right? That's not tanks coming across the border. That's a different kind of threat that I think we really can, uh, we really can make some progress on. We have cyber, uh, I think, assets, and we can, we can work, with the, work with NATO and the Europeans as well. Uh, I do think we have uh, ways in which to promote the diversity of energy supply uh, in Europe. Uh, and indeed, our uh, uh, great progress here with respect to natural gas production in the United States is already promoting a diversity of supply because this diver uh, diversion to uh, natural gas that would, would otherwise come to the United States can, come, can go to Europe as a, as a way to divert, uh, diversify supply. And I think there are efforts underway uh, in Europe uh, to do that. Uh, we need to continue to work with the Europeans on, the, on our counterterrorism uh, efforts. And I think it's really important in Europe um, for us to complete these TTIP negotiations, right, which is important economically for Europe and, and for us. So uh, I think it's a variety of tools that we have. Um, and then we have to have a multidimensional uh, look at this, our, our European policy. But I agree with Secretary Baker. I think there are a number of things that we can and should do uh, to, um, uh, to focus on the, on the challenge, essentially the challenge from Russia in, uh, uh, and ISIS in Europe. With my remaining time, um, Secretary Baker, can I just bring you back to the Middle East for, for a moment? A lot of discussion here about the U.S. participation in the Saudi-led coalition bombing campaign in Yemen and worries that this proxy war is going to expand to territory beyond Yemen. What, what's your advice, and I'd be happy to get uh, Mr. Donald's advice as well, on uh, the U.S. positioning vis-a-vis -vis this growing proxy war? Should we be backing the Saudis' play in every instance? Should we be evaluating each conflict on its own merits? I think, uh, I think we should be applying the, the principles of selective engagement, as I said in my opening statement. Some instances are going to require that we that we be there and that we be there militarily. Uh, just as a generic matter, I think we need to 
we need to get closer if we can now to the Saudis. They, they really feel that we don't have their back anymore, and they've been a they've been a pretty good ally for a long, long time. Have, have they done some things with these madrasas and things that we need that we needed to shut down? Yes, and we've worked at them both both uh, uh, Democrat and Republican administrations to get them to come off of that behavior, and they've come off of it su substantially. But they've been a good ally. They are an important ally in the region. They really feel uh, disaffected with us now. And so I don't see any reason why we should not uh, be there for them, have their back, if you will, not necessarily to the full extent of, of, uh, of uh, military action, but I don't happen to see a problem with our uh, trying to help them uh, deal with the threat uh, from Iran and the Houthis in Yemen. Yes, Senator, we need to give them our best advice, obviously, uh, with respect to the operations they have underway, and we're pretty deeply involved in doing that, and, and we give them support for, for a number of these operations. But we need to give them our best advice, as I said, with respect to specific operations. But I agree with Secretary Baker, and, and President Obama, obviously, just last month went to Riyadh to host a GCC summit. Uh, it's important uh, for the United States to provide, uh, I think, reassurance with respect to our partners, uh, our partners like Saudi Arabia and the region. You know, um, it's always important uh, to to have a keen understanding of the threats that they see and that they feel, and for us to really do a clear-eyed assessment of what the alternatives are as we proceed, uh, as we proceed with our policy going forward. Thank you, yep. Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you very much for the opportunity to um, hear your hearings, your, your testimony today. Uh, I wanted to follow up a little bit on this question of energy issues and the, the burden that the American taxpayers are, are carrying. And, NATO and other, uh, other instances around the globe. Uh, Secretary Baker, you mentioned uh, it's not fair to carry an undue burden of, of world security, I think, to paraphrase what you had said. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think uh, that's uh, the essence of what you had talked about. Uh, and we talked about uh, European security when it comes to energy and, and Russia, and Russia's, of course, reliance on energy to fill its federal coffers. Uh, we have this 2% requirement with NATO in terms of what we expect or would like them to uh, contribute to uh, the NATO alliance. But when it comes to energy and some of the other strategic vulnerabilities that we see in a number of our NATO allies, I look at energy as one of those sort of key strategic vulnerabilities because of their dependence on Russia. Should we have policies as the U.S. and NATO that would help drive some of our NATO alliance members to um, develop further energy securities? Because a number of policies in Europe uh, would prohibit them from developing all of their energy resources or not allowed by their uh, governments or NGO actors? Uh, and can the United States do more to help provide them with that to help shore up this, vulnerable, this strategic vulnerability? You mean by way of taking on their own, their own uh, restrictions? I don't know that we can do too much there. Uh, if, if those restrictions are imposed by their state, by their... I don't know if the United States can do much other than through uh, persuasion and through diplomatic channels to try and, to try and get them to concentrate on removing those uh, uh, bureaucratic impediments. That's all I know that we can do. You know, we've been asked to, a lot of us have been asked to uh, sign a letter to uh, supporting the, the, um, the idea that uh, that the UK should not leave the European Union. 
And uh, I, I, as a former Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State, I was asked to sign such a letter, and I declined because I don't, if I were, if I were a minister over here or President of the United States over here and foreign, foreign ministers of another country wrote me a letter saying, here's what you ought to be doing uh, with your own affairs, I would sort of resent that. So I just said, I don't think that's the proper role. And I don't think it's our proper role to get into uh, trying to change the, the, the laws of those states, internal laws of those states, other than through suasion, persuasion, and diplomatic channels. Um, I think there's a lot Europe can do, though, uh, with respect to advancing its uh, energy diversity. Um, they can do a lot more with respect to building on infrastructure in order to receive natural gas from other places, uh, other places in the world, including the United States. Um, I think they can work on a, a, a more rational pipeline and distribution uh, system. And we can provide advice on that. And I think we should, I disagree a little bit, I think we should be advocating uh, for Europe to, uh, to take steps to diversify its uh, energy supply and to reduce any monopoly um, influence that Russia might, might have. And there's been some progress uh, with respect to diversity, uh, diversity supply, but a lot more, a lot more can be done. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Mr. Secretary, in a speech in 2011, you said, uh, allow me to be blunt, some in the United States, not a majority by any means, but certainly a vocal minority, see China's rise as a threat somehow to America's international status. They believe that conflict between our two countries is inevitable as Chinese ambitions clash with American position and power. Ladies and gentlemen, these observers are wrong. And they are not only wrong, they are dangerously wrong, and the reason is very simple. Their analyses grossly underestimate the broad areas where Chinese and American interests converge. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that is that statement still holds today? Yeah. And what are yeah. our future risks and how we, we should handle them? I, I do, Senator Gardner. I, um, I happen to believe that uh, one of the most important, one of the biggest challenges facing American policymakers today is how we react to the rise of China as a global power. Uh, and I think it's extremely important that we get it right. It's important that China get it right, too, in terms of their relationship with us. There are some areas uh, with respect to China where there can be a convergent, where there is a convergence of interest and where we can be uh, uh, semi-cooperative, uh, it seems to me. Uh, but there are plenty of areas uh, where we're going to continue to have tensions. We're going to have tensions on human rights. We're going to have tensions on Taiwan. We're going to have tensions on Tibet, and we're going to have tensions now involving the South China Sea. But we need to we need to cooperate with China where we can. Regional security, energy security, perhaps trade, but we need to manage the differences that are going to exist. So cooperate where we can, manage the differences where they exist. But we, uh, we will certainly need to maintain a robust uh, continue to maintain a robust presence, military presence in the uh, Pacific in the form of the Seventh Fleet uh, to guard against any Chinese efforts to, uh, to achieve hegemony in that part of the world. And there are a lot of our allies in that, in that part of the world that are counting on us to, to be there for them. Uh, I think we can. All I'm saying is it's not foreordained that the United States and China are going to become enemies, at least not in my opinion.
if we play our cards right. And I'm gonna add, I know Mr. Donnellan, you'd like to jump in, or I wanna add a little bit to that. I mean, we obviously have been, uh, the Seventh Fleet you mentioned, uh, our freedom of navigation operations. Uh, what more should we be doing in the South China Sea in addition to this question, Mr. Donnellan, and should we also be pursuing other asymmetric uh, actions, uh, diplomatic channels, in addition to our, our, our right of passage exercise? Well, we should be doing all the diplomacy we can, absolutely, but, but the freedom of navigation is very important, and we need to, to impress upon the Chinese uh, the danger that these activities present, particularly where you have a conflict between China and Japan, Japan over the uh, so-called Diatai Islands or Senshaku Islands, because we got a, a security treaty with Japan, and if they start shooting at each other over those island, uh, uninhabited rocks out there, it's not going to be a good thing for us. But yeah. let me you turn. Know, Senator, I, I don't. I think there's really no more serious. Um, a diplomatic burden that we're going to have going forward than to manage the U.S.-China relationship. Right. Uh, and because of history, right, and the, and the dynamics between a rising power and existing power, it's a real challenge uh, and one that needs a lot of attention. And again, there's a great burden on policymakers on both sides. Second, as Secretary Baker said, I think this will require us to continue our presence in the region. I think following through on the, on the rebalance effort is, is, is quite, uh, quite important ensuring that we have appropriate resources and the right balance of, of, uh, of forces there. Third, we need to make very clear and to the Chinese, and we have. I've spent as much time with the Chinese leadership, I think, as anybody in our government over the last few years, uh, to make absolutely clear that we are going to maintain our alliances. Uh, some on the Chinese side see them as anachronistic Cold War relics, but in fact, they are the basis on which we engage in the region and will continue to engage in the region. And one of the great beneficiaries of our engagement over the last three quarters of a century has been China. Uh, two uh, or three uh, problem problematic areas, obviously. Uh, the South China Sea, uh, it's important for us to underscore the key principles that we seek to maintain there, freedom of navigation, peaceful uh, resolution of disputes, enforcement of international law. We do that through our presence in these kinds of these freedom of navigation exercises. I think it's important for us to continue to press in the region for a code of conduct to be established uh, for um, activities with respect to these uh, disputed, uh, disputed and other areas. Um, I think that um, uh, we can uh, uh, press with China in dialogue and understanding that there's a real danger here of mistake and miscalculation, uh, and one that we should do everything we can to avoid. You know, my conversations with, with the counterparts in the Chinese government with respect to this area, I, I said many times, you know, uh, we've got a tremendous amount of stake here, right? Uh, and some night in the middle of the night or in the middle of your day, right, we're going to get a call and we're going to have a problem around some rock formation or island, the name of which we don't know and we can't find on a map and it's going to be a real blow to our, uh, to our relationship. So it's something that I think that really the Chinese need to think very hard about in terms of their more aggressive actions here. And we need to be very steadfast in, in addressing it. And the last thing I'll say, as I said in my opening statement, I think we had a really premier test of the U.S.-China relationship going into next year is the North Korea situation. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, 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 the most important security challenge we have in Asia, as I said in my testimony, the most important proliferation challenge we have globally. Uh, the North Koreans are proceeding headlong with respect to a missile program and nuclear program. And at the end of the day, uh, we are going to have to take steps to, pr to, to protect ourselves, obviously, against this, because it's not acceptable to any U.S. president to have the North Koreans with an ICBM capability, with a miniaturized nuclear weapon, that can reach the United States. And a number of the steps we're going to take, obviously, are going to make China strategically uncomfortable. 
And this dialogue with China, I think, on this is quite urgent and a real test of the relationship going forward. Thank you, Mr. Let, me, let me echo what, what Tom just said. I couldn't agree more about the North Korean comments. And, and if we're going to have any chance at all of getting this done short of some sort of a military response, which would be unappealing at best, uh, it's going to have to be with China. China's the only country in the world that's going to have any real influence on the North Koreans. Yeah, Secretary Baker, Mr. Donald, and thank you for that. This committee has been leading in the area of North Korea and the sanctions bill that we passed. would love to continue this conversation with both of you about what more could be done, in particular in light of the fact that it looks like right now, from at least the trade ministry in China, that trade with North Korea between China and North Korea has actually increased uh, and not decreased. And uh, that's some powerful leverage that they seem to be heading the wrong direction on. Thanks for your leadership and that effort, uh, Senator Udall. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And we, this, uh, Committee has been discussing this for a, for a long time. We've talked about sanctions. I'd like to follow up a little bit on the North Korea part of this. You you talked about how important it is that we um, that we address the issue. What steps specifically do you think uh, Congress should take in this conflict we have going on, and then what the executive should take on North Korea with what's developing there right now? Well, I think the <laughs> I think the executive should, uh, should uh, make it clear to the Chinese leadership that this is something that we view very gravely, that it's a matter of utmost and serious concern to us. Uh, if the executive comes to the Congress and asks for sanctions of any kind, I think the Congress ought to respond quickly and effectively and affirmatively. Because surely that's not, the first response is not going to be a military one. I think we all understand that. But we're going to have to do something because, as uh, Mr. Donald has said, they are racing pell-mell toward uh, nuclear capabilities that constitute a serious threat to us and to our security treaty allies, Japan and South Korea. Mr. Donald, please. Senator, I, I guess I'd go through a list of things. Uh, one is sanctions, obviously, and the, and the resolution at the UN 2270 is a real step forward, and we did this in cooperation with the Chinese. There are loopholes in, that, uh, in those sanctions, though, with respect to coal sales and things like that, and those loopholes should be, should be closed. Um, my judgment on sanctions, you know, taking my experience from the, Ira from the Iran situation, right, where, uh, you know, we basically put together over the course of a half a decade a series of sanctions that were regime-threatening, ultimately, and that's what brought Iran to the table. And I think that should be the goal of a sanctions regime with respect to North Korea, that they see it as regime-threatening. The second is to the Congress to support and the administration to continue to put in place the appropriate missile defense systems in uh, Korea, both to protect uh, us uh, and our allies uh, uh, in, the, in the region. Uh, we're moving to do that. We've opened up discussions with the South Koreans on putting a THAAD a system in South Korea, but we need to do more, than I think, on that. Third, support President Park and her vision. She's taking concrete steps too, including pulling back uh, uh, the uh, uh, South Koreans from the joint uh, industrial facility in, in, uh, in North Korea. Support President Park's vision of a unified, peaceful Korea and do, do it aggressively. And then fourth, I think from the executive branch side, to, to really undertake an effort to deepen our conversation with the Chinese about the future of the peninsula. It's, it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation for them, but when you're presented with the fact 
that the United States is going to have to do a number of things to protect itself that are not going to be aimed at Beijing, but Beijing are going to see them as strategically uncomfortable, that's going to head us towards uh, a, 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 obviously a serious uh, a strategic um, a disagreement with the Chinese. But those, again, those, those steps won't be aimed at China. These are aimed at Pyongyang, and China's going to have to come to the table with that understanding and work with us a lot harder, I think, on imagining uh, a, a future for the peninsula and working with us much more in a much more aggressive way. I think those are the key steps. I think sanctions, missile defense, uh, politics, uh, and a deeper conversation with the Chinese uh, about the situation. As I said, this is going to be a key test for the U.S.-China relationship in the coming year. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for those answers. I, I would uh, like to shift back. You, we've had a lot of discussion about uh, Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and what happened there. And one of the things we've talked about, and I, in a way, compliment the chairman and Senator Cardin for, for holding a hearing like this, um, is at certain points we should take stock as to where we are and what lessons we've learned. And it seems to me uh, when, you, when you look at those three countries and you look at the amount of aid uh, that we've spent, and I think people are talking about greater than the Marshall Plan, uh, when, when you uh, look at what results we've gotten and where we are today, um, what do you think the, the lessons are that we should have learned? Uh, and in, in, in particular, I'd like to focus in, in on Afghanistan since we've had so much uh, difficulty there stabilizing that. I'm not sure that I uh, am the best person to answer that for you, Senator. Tom's, Tom left government far uh, later than I did, and he dealt with Afghanistan. I never had to do that. But I will simply say that, you know, it's now the longest war that we've ever fought. We're still there, but I would, I would suggest that the one thing we ought not to do is to make what I think was a mistake in Iraq by withdrawing our forces too quickly. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I certainly w uh, support President Obama's decision to leave forces in, in Afghanistan, and uh, I think, unfortunately, that we're going to be there uh, a, a good bit longer. We ought to do everything we can to promote uh, a, an agreement between uh, the government and the Taliban. Anything that we can do to get that done and to enhance that is what, is what we ought to do. But that, those are my thoughts. You know, Senator, it's a, I think it's an important question. So, you know, with respect to our undertakings in Afghanistan, as I said, as Secretary Baker said, it's been our longest war. But we have, in fact, um, really uh, diminished the threat from al-Qaeda uh, through our efforts in the region. And that's an important, obviously an important outcome. Um, it underscores just how difficult these, 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 these challenges are. And I do think it would be useful for the... Uh, uh, for our military in preparation for the next president coming into office is to ask uh, hard questions about uh, what are the lessons about how we have fought war in the last decade and a half uh, and really drill down on it and prepare for the next president. They really a set of kind of lessons learned uh, as to, um, as to how, we have, how, how we fought war. Because we've had some successes, but we've made obviously a number of errors and we've had some, we've had some uh, strategic, strategic difficulties. I agree with Secretary Baker where we are today though in Afghanistan, given the pressure from a resurgent Taliban, I think we're going to need a, 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 a probably the, the current level or something like the current level of, of U.S. forces we have there for some time for some time to come. But we did, you know, it is important to, to underscore we did make significant progress against Al Qaeda. Uh, we did provide the Afghan 
people with an opportunity to build a, a, a society there. But, but you know, it, you have to have some humility about this as well, right? I mean, the ability for this distance to reform societies that are so different than ours is really something that is really uh, is, is, is limited ultimately. So we need to identify our, the threats to us, deal with those, do what we can on the other side. Um, but I do think this lessons learned exercise uh, about how we fight war uh, is a useful thing for the next president to, to be able to look to. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I'm going to have my second interjection to give uh, Senator Flake just a moment uh, since he just stepped in. Um, I, in. In Afghanistan, I will say that al-Qaeda is coming back. I say that not to challenge. And that we just recently allowed our troops to go against them, which was pretty phenomenal. And there's no question that Pakistan is uh, undermining us uh, every day with their support of the Akani network, which is the greatest threat. Uh, to the Afghan government and to our men and women in uniform. And the duplicity of Pakistan and all of this uh, has been hard, I think, for most of us to stomach. But let me just ask this question. Um, selective engagement um, is the way Secretary Baker has framed it. Uh, Mr. Donnell and I, what would be your take on that view of U.S. foreign policy? I think it's, I think it's sensible. Uh, and, and the United States should always ask before it engages militarily uh, what the interests are involved, what interests are implicated. Yeah. Um, the degree of interest implicated, as I said earlier, will dictate what we do and what steps we take. Uh, third, uh, the response to every problem in the world is not a U.S. military action. So, so uh, let me, I thought you would agree. And, yeah. And, and so let me, let me take it to the next step. The, the world is watching right now. I mean, we are the greatest power on earth, and so the world is watching as this presidential race evolves. Um, certainly Europe's watching. I had a uh, leader from China in yesterday, and I can tell their demeanor, demeanor has changed greatly over the course of since I met with them last in, in February as they watch what is occurring. What is the best way for us to communicate strategic engagement? Because, um, you know, <laughs> There's, there can be inconsistencies there, right, because we're going to be looking at our, our core national interests. But as you, as you look at the best way for our nation, um, if you were advising uh, folks who now are going to be the focus, if you will, of U.S. foreign policy over the next six months as to how they might communicate that to the world, uh, how would that be? How they would communicate the principle of that's, selective That's correct. Engagement. That's correct. Well, <laughs> when we have a new president, he or she ought to say, this is, this is the foreign policy paradigm that I'm prepared to follow. And I'm going to take a look at each and every one of these issues as they come before me. I'm going to test them against the national interest. I'm going to test them against our principles and values. I'm going to test them against what I, what I and my advisors think is doable here. And, and then I'm going to uh, decide whether or not it's how I'm going to address that problem. Am I going to address it just economically and politically and diplomatically, or am I going to address it militarily as well? I mean, I think that's the, the way it would work. So it's going to depend, it's gonna depend uh, upon each specific instance or issue that comes before the commander-in-chief. But I, I don't know whether that answered your question. I'm going to follow up in just a second. Mr. Donlin, what would you? You know, Chairman, uh, uh, I think it's, um, it's important, I think, for people who are going to, who are going to be present to communicate their vision uh, of, of the foreign policy they intend to bring. Uh, and it's important to do that in some detail, I think, during the course of the campaign. I hope we can have that during the course of this, of this campaign. 
Uh, I think it's important uh, for uh, the next president to communicate uh, that with confidence, because as we've both discussed here today, the United States uh, uh, is uh, and has the resources to be the leading nation in the world and should be the leading nation in the world. I think it's required to be the leading nation in the world. I do think it's important to communicate that we'll continue to have a focus on our economic growth, which is obviously important for us, but important for the world. And I think there needs to be a very important focus on allies um, and the value that this global, unique global alliance system we have uh, has to the United States and will continue to have. Those are the kinds of themes, but it's a, um, but it's a, I think, a confident presentation, economics at the center, and allies is really the key to how we work in the world. And how would that be different from your perspective, fairly briefly, but how would that be different than uh, you think the world is viewing the United States today? Well, you're going to have, well, it, 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 it'll depend on who the next president is. Well, no, no, no. Yeah. So the, the, the selective engagement. Yeah. So the, what the, the two of you are talking about, if you were going to contrast that with how you look at U.S. foreign policy today, what would that be? Well, are you talking about right this very minute this or very U.S. Minute. foreign policy over the past 20 years? I mean, I think, I think the beauty of this paradigm that I've suggested is that you look at each and every foreign policy problem on its own bottom, okay? And you then decide what range of, uh, of tools you're going to use to try and address it. You're not, you, you, you're not wedded to either a foreign policy based only on idealism, we're only going to go for principles and values, or, frankly, only on the national interest. What I would say, once again, is if, you, if you're talking about sending America's young men and women into, into harm's way, you better have a really significant national interest at stake, because as the body bags begin coming home, you will lose the policy if you don't have a significant national interest at stake. Witness Vietnam, witness Iraq in 2003. And so, I mean, I, I don't think that, I, I don't know what the view of US, U.S. foreign policy today is by people on the outside, because frankly, we've, uh, we've embraced a number of different paradigms. That's the best yeah. way I know yeah, how to answer But Chairman, I think, I think I know where you're, where you're coming from. So, so the, the um, I guess the question would be if you assume that there's perceptions um, in some quarters about the retrenchment um, and pulling back of U.S. leadership, uh, my judgment is that that's not borne out by the facts. I think I know where some of, this, some of this comes from. But the fact is, of course, that the United States continues to lead aggressively around the world, whether it be in, a in Asia, where we're implement implementing a rebalance to Asia and engage with China and actually and to, to uh, in, in constructive ways uh, and in terms of managing our differences and confronting our differences. Um, if you look at who's leading in terms of putting in place trade agreements at TPP and TTIP with the United States virtually standing in the center, putting together the most important trade agreements around, around the world. If you look in the Middle East, um, the United States led the effort to address the uh, non-proliferation challenge from Iran. The United States is leading the counterterrorism effort in, in the world. Uh, and the United States has increasingly, and I think it's been important actually to accelerate our efforts with respect to the challenges in Syria uh, and in Iraq. So I think it's important um, to underscore the facts. And I think also we've also taken some uh, very important steps with respect to uh, deepening our relationship in our own hemisphere. 
That guy, the way, gets way too little attention, I think, in terms of a strategic strength of the United States. No great power, no great nation or important nation in the world has the kind of strategic base that we do in terms of the Americas and the, and the potential. So I think it's important to underscore the fact of American leadership with specifics. I do think it is important for us to continue to accelerate our efforts uh, in Iraq and Syria to address those problems, which are going to exist beyond this, uh, the end of this, uh, President Obama's uh, our presidency. Uh, but those are the kinds of, that's the kind of conversation I think that we should, we should be having with the world, confident, based on the facts, and rooted in continued U.S. leadership. Can I say, without, without this being interpreted as a political statement, which it didn't, because I agree with 99% of what Thomas said here today, we need to make the world understand we're going to lead from in front and not from behind, because I think that's an oxymoron. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, apologize if I'm plowing old ground here with questions earlier. I couldn't be here earlier. Um, with regard to the JCPOA and Iran, um, you know, the purpose of it uh, was certainly to blunt their nuclear program, but we can't uh, deny that it's, it's really kind of changed the order in the Middle East. Iran has been a pariah uh, since 1979 because of its uh, pursuit of nuclear weapons and other activity, and now um, it's, uh, it's gained status, at least, uh, as, uh, you know, a responsible nation state, I guess, or how we're going to treat them uh, by relieving sanctions. I thought that the vote on the JCPOA was a closer call than most. I ended up opposing it um, because of Iran's other activities that I didn't think we could address. But can you talk a little about this, what's ahead in terms of Iran and the change in the order in the Middle East? You mentioned that I heard before that uh, we need to be careful and maintain our alliances uh, with the Saudis, for example. Uh, how do we do that uh, with this new order in the Middle East? Well, I think we have to reassure not just the Saudis, but our other allies in the Middle East, <clears throat> Israel and the other uh, moderate Arab uh, states of the Arabian Gulf. Uh, let them know we've still got their back. Let them know that, and as we've said uh, over and over, that this, this deal with Iran is is nuclear only, doesn't have anything to do with anything else. It's too bad it doesn't, but it doesn't. And, uh, and that we're going to be there and that we're still going to oppose the, the participation in terror that, uh, uh, that Iran as a state sponsor of terrorism has, been, has lived with for some time. And just re reaffirm our support for them and, and, and help prop them up because they're, they're, they're really, they're, they're really not happy with us. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not happy with us about this deal. Now, when the t w back there, when the question was whether should we, we should go forward or not go forward, I was in favor of going forward because I didn't think we could bring the uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Europeans along to maintain sanctions. You could argue that we never should have gotten into this negotiation if you think that. Iran's bad behavior outweighs the risk that they were, outweighs the, the stability that we'll get for uh, 10 years of no nukes in Iran, then you wouldn't have started this to begin with. I mean, we've freed up all, the, all those uh, Iranian funds, whatever it is, a billion, billion and a half, and they're still free to do all the, the nasty things that they do in the region, and they're going to do them, in my opinion. 
but when that, when that issue was before uh, the Congress and before the country, I, I said that I was in favor of going forward with it because I didn't think we could maintain the sanctions, and I think the sanctions would have gone. Those sanctions were very effective in bringing Iran to the table. But now I think our obligation is to really let the, our, our longtime allies in the region know that we're going to have their back and that we're, gonna, we're, no, we're not changing our view and our opposition to Iran's uh, bad actions in the region. Mm -hmm. Tom? Yeah, it's a, um, I mean, Secretary Baker described the, the determination, right? It was, it was seen um, by President Obama and the administration as the principal security threat in the region. And, the prince, and, a, and a very serious non-proliferation threat. It was at a stage where we had the opportunity to stop it, uh, and we succeeded in a negotiation which essentially stops it with pretty much a reasonably high degree of certitude for a decade and a half, and that was the decision that was made. Uh, and I think it was the right decision with respect, to, with respect to a really serious security issue that we face. Now, it was not some sort of quixotic uh, ex uh, exercise, though, with a... Uh, kind of illusions about the nature of the Iranian regime. The purpose of, the, of it was, as Secretary Baker said, it was a, it was a transactional, not a transformational mm -hmm. uh, exercise where we, in a transactions arms control uh, setting, uh, dealt with their nuclear program for a period, uh, for an extended period of, uh, of time. But, but we still face an Iran regime, right, that um, is uh, engaged in destabilizing confrontational um, and de uh, uh, activities in the Middle East, and we have to confront it. So I think a number of things. One is that uh, there are two different pieces here. There's the four corners of the deal, which need to be re enforced uh, strictly, uh, and there needs to be penalty for a diversion from the four corners of the deal. There are Iran's uh, behavior outside the four corners of the deal, which is going to be much more problematic for us going forward, and it needs to be confronted, and confronted mm -hmm. directly, I think, in working with our allies uh, uh, and partners. And third, we need to have in place uh, and this is uh, uh, a, excuse me, we need to have in place a uh, very serious uh, deterrent. Uh, Iran needs to understand that if in fact that they pursue a nuclear weapon, contrary to the undertakings that they took in connection with the deal, that the United States is prepared to take actions, any actions necessary, including military action, to keep them from doing so. This deterrence message is a very important message, I think, going forward here uh, for the region uh, and for the world. Thank you. Secretary Baker, I met you first time, you won't remember it, but in 1989 I was in Namibia mm -hmm. uh, when uh, they were going through that transition and you came down and had negotiations with Shavardnadze, if I remember, during that time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but a lot has happened. That was Namibian independence. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. Uh, a, lot, a lot has happened in Africa. We're having issues right now in a number of countries where uh, political leaders don't want to leave after their terms in office uh, in the DRC right now and in uh, East Africa as well, Rwanda and Burundi. And, and, uh, what, what are your thoughts with regard to the efficacy of, of uh, unilateral sanctions or other measures that we could take? Um, we've, we, uh, our, our influence at times is limited, but we do have some influence. Yeah. How should it be wielded? Well, you know, unilateral sanctions are never as effective as multilateral sanctions. We all know that. But there may be a time for those, particularly in instances like that, if we, looking at, the, looking at it with, through the paradigm of selective engagement, if we say, okay, this is a matter that is of great 
interest to the United States, concern to the United States. We need to be engaged. And how are we going to be engaged? We're going to be engaged by putting sanctions on these individuals who won't step down. You've got to weigh the pluses and the minuses, do a cost-benefit analysis in effect. I mean, what are we going to gain from it, and what, what, is, what is it, if anything, that it'll cost us? But I don't see any reason why we, we shouldn't do that if we think that's uh, the right approach to take. All right. Well, thanks. We'll be holding some hearings in the subcommittee on that issue, so this is a good preview. <laughs> thank you for your testimony. Thank you very much. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, thank both of you so much for being here and for your service to our country. Um, Secretary Baker, thank you so much for recommending to President Bush that uh, you not go to Baghdad. That, that stands the test of historical scrutiny. I don't think you were here, Senator, when I said shortly after we got out of office, for, the, for two or three years after we got out, every time I'd make a speech anywhere, people would say to me, why didn't you guys take care of Saddam when you had the chance? I don't get that question anymore. You, know, the, you, you, have, to, you have to balance, I think, what you did, American military might with uh, wisdom, yeah. and uh, you brought that to uh, that decision, and we thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and so now, as we look at Iraq today, we can see the rising influence of al-Sada. Uh, he was behind this Shia takeover of the parliament. Yeah, yeah. Um, ostensibly, they're calling for reforms, but um, those reforms include changing the role in which the Sunnis and the Kurds play in the government in that country. And we're already um, basically looking at Sunnis in Tikrit, wondering when do the Shia ever, do, ever let their control over that city go so that they can once again play a role in the government. And that would create problems for ta the takeover of Mosul, for example, so that the Sunnis in that um, a city would say that it's, will, it's, it's worth it to fight the, um, the ISIS Sunnis because we will be then given back our control over that city and on and on. Could you give us your view as to uh, the role that Iran is playing uh, in this al-Sada agenda in Iraq right now uh, and what the United States should be doing uh, in order to push back so that uh, the forces of inclusion, so that it's not just the Shia, but the Sunnis and the Kurds, uh, retain uh, roles that are prominent inside of the government. Well, t again, Tom is probably more up to speed on this because he dealt with it more recently, but let me, <clears throat> let me say that I think, uh, and this is not a political statement, Senator, but I think we, we left too soon I would said that in response to an Afghan uh, question. Uh, we, we were unable to negotiate a status of forces agreement. I don't know whether we should have been able to do it or not, but we didn't, and, and we left. Uh, Iraq is, uh, Iraq is in, I'm like Tom, very seriously concerned about the situation in Iraq today. And I think what you saw with Muqtada al-Sadr's takeover of the, of the uh, Green Zone was very, very disturbing, uh, because it's more of what we saw uh, <laughs> before. And do you see it as an extension of an Iranian 
Yeah, I think I don't think there's any doubt in the world that Iran is the most most important player, foreign nation player in Iraq today. Not the United States, nobody else. Iran. They have an influence on the Shia government and have had since that government came to power. Of course, Iraq, Iraq is a is a Shia majority state. And so, uh, yeah, I, I see, I see uh, a lot of Iranian influence. So what, so what, from your perspective, should the United States be saying, doing, uh, building you know, a coalition of other countries that have a stake in long-term Iraqi stability uh, in order to make sure that this Shia perspective, this radical Shia perspective, does not poison any ability to bring the Sunnis and the Kurds long-term Back. to the table to have a united country. I don't, I, I don't know anything that we can do other than continue to work with the uh, uh, Iraqi government. Uh, President Obama is incrementally increasing the presence of U.S. forces there. Uh, Tom probably knows the extent and degree of that better than I do. But uh, I think that's probably called for now. I hate to see it. I hate to see us going back in there. We're not going back in full bore. If, if Maliki had allowed for 10,000 American troops to stay in Iraq, yeah. how, in your opinion, do you think that I may think have that changed? I think that would have made a big difference. Yeah. I really do. I, th I think it would have made a difference in, uh, it, it, it wouldn't have made a difference in whether or not the Maliki government did what yeah. they should have done, which was to give the, give the uh, Kurds and the Sunnis a fair shake. They, they've never done that. They've been very, very partisan ever since the beginning. Uh, and uh, this new government is less partisan, I think. Thank let you. me turn to Thank Tom. You. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, uh, Senator, a couple of things. Number one, the uh, governance efforts in Baghdad are as important as the anti-ISIS efforts outside of Baghdad, um, because the source of ISIS in Iraq is uh, basically a failure of governance. It was a Maliki government undertaking an authoritarian, sectarian approach to governing. Uh, politicizing the uh, Iraqi security forces, which led to a, a great deterioration, obviously. Uh, and we can be successful with respect to our efforts, and I think we will be, in terms of rolling back ISIS and defeating them. But it will be a short-term success if, in fact, we, if we have a, a, a non-inclusive government again in Baghdad, which will lead to the same kind of dynamic. How concerned are you that Abadi, given this pressure that al-Sada is now bringing, won't have the capacity, well, we need as to, you're saying, you know, to create a political space for the other religions in that uh, I think country. it's concerning, but we need to support him in that effort. The other pressure, of course, on the Baghdad Are you optimistic? Is, is low oil prices, yeah. oh, which is another whole I appreciate it, but, uh, and we can't do anything about that, um, except lower them further when the fracking revolution continues in America. So that's the more likely direction. Um, Secretary Baker's an expert on that subject. But, um, but are you optimistic, in other words, you know, in I'm terms of ultimately what will unfold in Iraq? Can, can we give the support to Abadi? Can he push back against al-Sada? And does he have the, the will to push back against the Iranians who actually have a stake in the instability in that country? You know, they have a big stake in it. Uh, uh, and I, I, don't, I think at this point, you, you can only identify the policy priority. I can't judge, I can't judge from this distance, right? Um, the, uh, the likelihood of success, but I do know what the right policy priority should be, and it is to support El Badi in having a more diverse and, and, and representative, representative government. Um, you know, with respect to ISIS, um, 
you know, what's happened, of course, is, is that ISIS has now entered a new, I think, a dangerous phase, which is moving to, towards an external agenda uh, outside the, the, cal the so-called caliphate uh, area, the theater of war right now in Syria and Iraq. Uh, and so it's something we don't have any choice, I think, but to, but, to, uh, but to press against and defeat. I mean, at this point, we have to break the back of ISIS's perception, but, but like the you're narrative saying, of success. Like right? you're saying, we can't break their back unless after we take over with the Sunni support, Mosul and other cities, yeah. okay, that then it holds. This is because be otherwise it's just repetition syndrome. No, I agree And we go right back into the same cycle. And so that's, I think, again, I continue to believe that unless we can think through and apply the right pressure, especially to the Iranians, on this Iraqi Sada agenda, uh, that ultimately uh, all of our efforts are just not going to bear the long-term fruit that we're hoping for um, for that region. And, uh, and I just, again, I want to thank both of you for you know, the, the great service to our country. Thank you. Very good. I know we're pressing up against a hard stop for Secretary Baker. Um, so, Senator Coons, if you'd go ahead and we'll end up after you, sir. Thank you very much to uh, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin for convening this fascinating hearing. And I'd like to thank Secretary Baker and National Security Advisor Donilon for your decades uh, of very constructive, strong, and capable leadership in American uh, foreign policy. This has been a fabulous hearing, so I appreciate your uh, engagement with us. And it has been remarked by uh, many members of this committee, the current presidential election uh, has seen uh, candidates uh, question long-held assumptions and commitments and principles that have underlain uh, U.S. foreign policy uh, for a long time. And some of these statements seem to have struck a chord with the American people, and this upcoming election season is an opportunity uh, to reflect on the changing nature of the world, uh, the challenges, threats, and opportunities we face, and to reassess our role in it. Uh, no matter the outcome uh, of the election, the Senate, and this committee in particular, must continue to grapple uh, with the trends that you've identified that are transforming the international system uh, and decide how we will defend our interests, engage with our allies, and advance our values. Um, so with that in mind, let me ask uh, two just broad questions and then invite you to use the remainder of your time to speak to it uh, as you will. Um, first, uh, the role of this committee and the Senate more broadly. So this is a process question. Uh, the chairman and ranking member have done a great job of working on a bipartisan basis uh, to strengthen the role of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, which I'll just posit has waned somewhat as the general partisanship and division in the Congress uh, has been a barrier to our being an effective player in foreign policy formulation. So my first question would be, tell me in your experience how you perceived the role of the Senate and what concrete actions you think we could take to strengthen the role of the Senate in policy making and to be more relevant. And if you'd reflect on that in, in answering two other questions, that'd be great. How do we strengthen the international rules-based order that we established after the Second World War that has been so important to security and prosperity? And how can we confront the fact that there is this whole belt of fragile countries across North Africa and the Middle East that runs arguably from Mali and Mauritania all the way through Syria and Iraq out to Pakistan in a way that will make a real difference? What's the role of the Senate? How do we strengthen it? And how do we strengthen the world order? And how do we address that whole region of instability in a meaningful way um, in the remaining six minutes? Well, I think that, that uh, Chairman Corker has, has moved this committee back to, <clears throat> to uh, the role that it played when, when uh, J. William Fulbright and others chaired it. 
And I think that's good. I think that uh, it's important. I first started testifying here before foreign relations when Claiborne Pell was the chairman. And, uh, and I've seen a lot of chairmen. I've seen Jesse Helms and Dick Luger and a whole bunch of people, John Kerry and Joe Biden. Joe Biden, thank you. Yep, and it's a, it's a very, very important committee. If you're interested in foreign affairs, uh, this, is a, this is, I think, the preeminent committee of the Congress on, on that issue. Uh, I'm sure uh, Ed Royce might not agree with me on that, but they're both important, but this is, this is an extremely important committee. And I think uh, Chairman Corker and uh, Ranking Member Cardin are taking it back to what it used to be, and I'm delighted to see that. That's the only comment I would make uh, with respect to that. What was the second question, Senator? What should we be doing um, to strengthen the international rules-based order that the United States really led post-World War II? You talked well, I think, I think it's important uh, that we, that we uh, live up to our financial responsibilities, that we uh, pay our dues, yes, to the UN, mm -hmm. among, among others. But I think one of the strengths of America, my opening statement made, made the point that uh, we are the uniquely preeminent power in the world today, and in my opinion, we're we uh, stand to remain that. There's no real challenger to us for the foreseeable future. And one of the, one of the uh, elements of our strength are our uh, leadership role in these international institutions, whether it's the IMF or the World Bank or the WTO or the UN. And it's important to understand that these help America. They, may, they help us maintain uh, security for the, for the American people, and they strengthen America. So I think that would be my answer to you on that. Yeah. On the, uh, Senator, uh, thanks for the question. On, the, you know, on this committee, I'd say three things. One is um, you know, the coin of the realm are uh, policy ideas, right? And I think a deep exploration and then coming forward with concrete approaches and ideas is really important. Um, and I think this committee is doing that in a, in a variety of places. But it's important to, to close the deal, right, to, to actually say, all right, we've looked at the problem, and we now have a set of possible recommendations and policy ideas that we want to put forward. I think the second is to continue to be out in the field uh, and to travel and to uh, learn what's going on. There's no substitute for that, frankly, as you know in, uh, uh, very well. There's just no substitute for members of this committee going out and seeing what's going on on the ground and getting a feel for the the history and the dynamics of places around the world. And the third is, and uh, Secretary Baker is, I'm a creature of the uh, executive branch, so it's a little it's a statement against interest. Um, uh, hold the, feet, hold, hold uh, the executive branch's feet to the fire. Two different ways to do that, right? One is to, is to, is to press on the seams of foreign policy problems, uh, where there seems to be, uh, you know, a crack or, uh, or, we ha or it, isn't, it doesn't really quite fit together, right? And the other is through um, uh, where there's been a problem uh, to actually do some investigative work. Uh, and again, come back with, uh, come back with recommendations for how, for how it might be done better, uh, better in the future. Those would be the three things I think that I would say for the committee. With respect to the, uh, uh, the, the rules-based order, I think the most important thing we can do is to remind the American people and our leaders that these institutions have worked well for the United States and they should be supported and continued. Well, as a member of the Appropriations Subcommittee that funds State Department and foreign aid, I'll just mention in closing that uh, Senator Graham has made a number of um, public comments. We held a hearing. Many members, Republican and Democrat, were present. On the question of fragile states, 
he is, I think, appropriately highlighting that the cost of restabilizing countries like Libya, Syria, Iraq, and continuing to hold together countries like Nigeria and Pakistan is going to be substantial. Yep. And we need to engage in a bipartisan and thoughtful way uh, in advancing why it is in America's interests to prevent the collapse of even more larger and more potentially dangerous states. I'm really grateful for your testimony today and to the chairman for convening this hearing. Thank you. Senator Cardin for a closing comment. Yes, uh, I want to thank both of our witnesses again. But uh, you know, Iran's come up several times in our discussions, and I certainly agree with both of your statements about the United States must reassure our Gulf state partners and Israel of our, uh, our commitment to, to their security. Uh, I, I do just make the observation, we all talk about being strong in regards to Iranian activities uh, that are not directly related to the JCPOA. Uh, and uh, I agree with that completely. I, I am concerned, though, that with Iran continuing to say to the international community that the United States is not operating in good faith when we are, whether we're going to be able to take firm actions against Iran for its non-nuclear activities and have the support of Europe. Because the connections currently being made in Europe, to me, could lead to a concern as to whether we can maintain that unity in a post-JCPOA world. That's an important uh, issue that we need to confront going forward and starting right now. It's really a, a matter of diplomacy, and we ought, to, we ought to stay engaged on it starting right this minute and, in, and talking, keep talking to those allies, keep them together, because we're not going to be able to do anything unilaterally on that problem. Right. Thank you both. Appreciate it. We thank you both for uh, uh, your careers, outstanding public service to our nation, your willingness uh, when the time calls to come back and help us as you have today. I think it's been a major contribution to us, I know that, and I think to our country, and we thank you for that. And if you could, um, uh, there'll be questions that will come after this. We'll close those as of the close of Business Friday. Uh, if you could, within a reasonable time, attempt to respond to those, we would appreciate it. But uh, we cannot thank you enough for being here today and for your outstanding uh, public careers. With that, the meeting's adjourned. Thank you, Chairman. Thanks, Tom.